You're listening to the Bill Kelly Podcast. Here's your host, Bill Kelly. And welcome once again, and thanks for joining us here on the Bill Kelly Podcast, critical conversations in critical times. Our guest today is uh, Elliot Tepper. Elliot, of course, is a professor emeritus of political science at Carleton University. Uh, he's been a guest uh, on, on my program for many, many years now uh, with an expertise in what's going on in global politics. And uh, it's it's a very confusing, very fluid situation uh, on a couple of different levels, uh, certainly with what's going on between Canada and India that we're going to touch on in, in a couple of minutes. Uh, but Elliot, first of all, welcome back to the program. It's good to have you with us today. Yeah. Thank you. Good to be with you, Bill. Let's let's focus a little bit on um, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and his trip to uh, well the North American continent, really, uh, trip to the United Nations, uh, meeting with President Biden, and uh, later last week, uh, this past Friday, of course, uh, Zelensky was in Ottawa and in Toronto, for that matter, too. Uh, maybe first of all, the importance of of Zelensky going to the UN to address the United Nations, and the importance of meeting with Joe Biden. Talk to us about that. I think the biggest takeaway from this, since we have you and I have been talking about Ukraine all along, is this. Uh, he was on a mission to be sure that he's when he's fighting a two-front war, that both fronts are looked after. One of the fronts, of course, is definitely the battlefront. And we mm-hmm. can talk about that a bit if you'd like. You know, he came on a, a shopping mission of sorts, and he got a lot of uh, uh, support for materials that are required in the war, including some from Canada. We can return to. But the other and primary goal of this entire visit, remember, anytime he travels, he's at risk. Uh, mm-hmm. He's a wanted man, and there are teams that are looking for him. Uh, I think his primary mission was on the second front, which was to maintain the unity of the democracies fighting against uh, Mr. Putin's autocracy and dictatorship and genocide, as he put here uh, during his talks this time. Mr. Putin is counting on winning this war, by war fatigue, that we would all give up on it. He can help create disunity, as he did uh, in regard to now Poland is uh, pulling away because the grain blockage. Mr. Putin is counting on war fatigue, and this trip was to counter that. The other element to this, too, and, and I want to focus, uh, I know the United Nations things was very, very important because uh, Zelensky is looking for support from some of those nations uh, and, and asking Canada I guess, and the United States to, to, to be an intermediary, I guess, with some of the African nations in particular, because, uh, the, the, as you say, the support seems to be waning. Uh, but it's waning even within the U.S. political system and the Congress there, too, which is, uh, I, I would think, uh, maybe to a point of, of greater importance to Mr. Zelensky right now, because, I mean, uh, as you mentioned, arms, money and support uh, from the Americans has been key in this whole thing. And that could well change. I mean, if some of the Republicans in, in the House have their way, uh, we've heard stories about anywhere from cutting off aid altogether to reduced aid, uh, which would be catastrophic for, for Ukraine. Yes. Uh, he can try to muster support by going to the UN and on to Washington and to the Pentagon uh, to show that really there's cross-party um, sustained and deep support. But we know that there are, uh, for example, Four senators, important Republican center senators, uh, Amy Kobachar and Lindsey Graham among them, have sent a letter to Biden saying, yes, we want to uh, continue support. Six others, <laughs> Republicans, said, no, we want to cut it off. Uh, there's kind of what I think accurately can be labeled the Putin wing of the MAGA movement that is very strong in terms of being vociferous, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but they are dragging Uh, the U.S. debate into exactly how long should we be supporting this war and blank check diplomacy, and we're not going to, in fact, um, they just tried to defeat uh, a faction in the House, and politics in the House of Representatives right now is (laughs) a circus and a zoo, Mm -hmm. but uh, they just tried to block a a separate bill there, uh, which is a standalone bill they wanted to make for support of Ukraine. Yes, there's very definitely a movement in the U.S. on the right to not support Ukraine. Uh, Mr. Trump, if he's reelected, which is a real possibility, he's almost certain to get the nomination for his party unless something intervenes. And then uh, right now the polls are showing uh, he's very close to Biden neck and neck actually for the presidency. We know his background in regard to Ukraine Mm -hmm. and Ukraine 
could face within, you know, by January of uh, 2024, he uh, he could uh, uh, actually November the uh, the election. He could face Ukraine could face a cutoff of support from the number one supplier. The argument is like this is is going like this, Bill. The people who are saying this is ridiculous. Uh, we have now a situation where the U.S. is spending less than 5% of its military budget, less than 5%. The absolute dollars are high because the military budget is high. Sure. But for less than 5% of the budget, uh, Ukraine, with no uh, loss of American lives, is taking apart the Russian army. And why is that a bad thing? And we're supporting democracies and supporting the geopolitics of the of Europe as we know them. The other side of that is, oh, this is an unending war. Uh, it can't be won. We're not going to support it. We we think Putin has a point. Uh, so let's force the, force Ukraine to negotiate. That's kind of the discourse going on. And it's a grave threat, definitely a grave threat, good for pointing it out, to the ongoing war in Ukraine. And, and everything, as you've mentioned before, is, is interwoven here. The you know the the, the GOP, the MAGA uh, element in Congress right now that seems to be of the mind that okay, en enough with Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy, of course, is is the is Speaker of the House, a Republican, and part of that MAGA group uh, who clearly is getting his marching orders from Donald Trump, even though Donald Trump is no longer the president. Uh, and as as evidenced, I guess, by uh, his trip uh, to the states earlier. Uh, when uh, he was going to meet with uh, with President Biden, uh, he was not invited to address the Congress. McCarthy's excuse was, he says, well, we just don't, don't have time for something like that. Uh, you're supposed to make time for world leaders like that, but clearly that's it's it's a slap in the face to, to Zelensky, isn't it? Yes. Again, backing up, because we're also talking about Canada, the primary mission uh, that President Zelensky is on is to shore up the unity of the democracies uh, in this war. And that's as much a threat to him as the battlefield front uh, where, where people are dying. And we have to remind ourselves, again, that Ukraine is paying a very high cost uh, in, in blood and treasure, but in blood in particular, for their counteroffensive and for the, for the uh, unbridled and, and illegal attacks that Russia is committing all across Ukraine. Uh, there is no battlefront. Uh, Ukraine is under attack all across its entire breadth and width by an illegal war from Russia. You, you talk about Putin waging a war of, of attrition. You got to wear these people down. Uh, what are the chances, if any, of, of, of that happening to, to Putin and, and, and to the Russian army? Uh, you know, you and I talked when this whole thing started, the invasion started some time ago right now that they expected this thing to be over within a week or maybe a couple of weeks. And, and here we are right now and the Russians uh, although they, as you've mentioned, are a much more powerful uh, military presence, uh, are, well, they're they're not winning. Uh, I mean, a lot of the the territory that they had had taken over as being retaken by Ukrainians. We can talk about the uh, uh, the offensive uh, launch of the Ukrainian army some months ago. Some critics are saying that it's uh, stalled. Some say it's a failure. Others are saying uh, strategically they're going in different directions right now. What are you seeing what's happening there? Because that's going to be a key part of the debate going forward as to how effective this is going to be. And can Ukraine, if not win this war, at least force Russia to go away? Yes. And that, of course, is all wrapped up in the visit that we're talking yeah. about, because sustaining support for the long haul is the primary purpose of the visit of President Zelensky. Uh, where he was received so well at the United Nations and rapturously here in Canada, but uh, it mixed, of course, in the U.S. because of the things we just talked about. Mm -hmm. Yes, the um, the whole question now is, I think, going to come down to, do we put too much pressure on Ukraine to have decisive military victories in this counteroffensive, or do we have the stomach to carry out uh, a longer war? And that, of course, is what uh, this is about Keeping in mind, Canada just now did something since we're talking about President Zelensky coming to Canada. Canada made a major point of saying, yes, we are going to support Ukraine militarily, humanitarian, financially, but we're also going to do it on a multi-year basis. And that uh, is very important, showing we're in this for the long haul, as long as it takes and whatever you need. But also that G7 has already said the same thing. So this is sending a message to Mr. Putin that this counteroffensive is not going to be the, be the be-all and end-all. If you can maintain that line, Russia, you still are not going to win this war. 
were in it for the longer haul. And that unfortunately remains an open question. Far too much emphasis has been given to success on the immediate battlefront uh, in this counteroffensive. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint, as, as the Ukrainians point out. And I noticed that in, in the tenure of some of Zelensky's comments, both to the UN, certainly with his meeting with Biden, and, and with Prime Minister Trudeau later in the week, uh, he wasn't just saying, poor us, you've got to help us uh, get rid of this no, demon no. Putin. He was talking about, look at what's going on in the world these days. And a lot of it is because of the war that we're fighting right now. You, you're tired of high gasoline prices. You're tired of high grocery prices. This is part of the cause. So in other words, he was kind of, you know, the old Tip O'Neill thing that all politics is local. Uh, yeah. This is affecting people in, in you know, in, in Iowa and, and Nebraska and, and Alberta and other places, too. And it's all because of this war, not singularly, but it's a major factor here. So he's saying, look, if you're not going to do it for us and the people of Ukraine, do it for yourselves. Yes, and the Prime Minister of Canada led off his introductory comments uh, introducing uh, President Zelensky to Parliament was precisely along those lines, Bill. This is really, uh, this is all about us. It isn't just about them and all the things you just mentioned. If you want to uh, fix those, you better help Ukraine win this war. And the emphasis on winning the war I think is very important because the long-term question comes, well, where, where's, what's the end point here? What, where's this war going? And the answer is, I can't tell you where the war is actually going. I can say that the pressure on Ukraine to make uh, come to a peace table now, right now, is growing. And that uh, Ukraine is, of course, resisting that. And the reason is that the pressure is really saying, when you lean on Ukraine right now, you've got to give up a whole lot of territory uh, in, in order to preserve your country. And Ukraine said, look, 2014, <laughs> our country didn't uh, go to war then. Russia started to dismember us in 2014. They're trying and failing right now. You're trying to force us to let them win. All they will do is regroup and start this war again. Because this is a war of elimination of the existence of the state of Ukraine. And he used the term genocide here uh, in, during his talk here. And his key phrase there, I thought, was, uh, since we're talking about both Zelensky's visit and the war in Ukraine closely linked, his key phrase there, I thought, was genocide is not going to win this war. Ukraine is going to win this war. And I think that needs to be underlined. The other element, too, and I, I kind of harken back to, to some of the, the, the language uh, that we heard back in the late 50s, early 1960s. Uh, from the United States, for instance, when uh, they tried to justify their existence and France's existence uh, in Southeast Asia. And it was the domino theory that right. if we don't stop them here, they're just going to keep on going. Uh, and, and it might have been a, a philosophical concept back in those days. It's certainly not in, in Eastern Europe right now, because we've seen that with Crimea and so many other areas. And I think Zelensky reminded the UN uh, delegates of that, didn't he? They look at if you let him win this one, he's just going to keep going and you might be next. Yes, and uh, even, the, even the leader of Japan has said, Japan has said, uh, what's happening in Ukraine today could be us tomorrow. Absolutely. This is an attempt by uh, uh, Russia to change the fundamental geopolitics of Europe. It's far more true today about the domino effect than it was back then. I'm an Asian studies specialist, and it was mm -hmm. uh, very specious to suggest that China and Vietnam were going to be united forever. These are eternal enemies. And even as an undergrad, just starting my studies, I could point that out then. But uh, no, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, Moldova more immediately, uh, and Belarus, more, although they're already a satrapy, but they're, they're going to be uh, next on the chopping block. And there will be Russian uh, nuclear weapons into the heart of Europe if they're allowed to absorb Ukraine. This is and, th and this is all being backstopped by China, who clearly uh, likes to think of the idea of a kind of a duopoly with them as the senior partner. The two uh, big authoritarian powers will then, you know, rule the world, so to speak, and set set the rules for the world. Uh, and that's kind of, that's what's at stake, and that's what we have to remind ourselves. Plus the fact that an innocent country is being mercilessly bombarded by the most lethal weapons other than nukes so far that Russia has as its command from the land, the sea, and the air. Is it bothersome that, that as we see these things evolving and, and the power struggles that are happening, now, not just in Eastern Europe, 
or Southeast Asia, but in, in Africa as well. And I know that was one of the key elements in Zelensky's uh, UN address right. that we seem to be sadly moving towards the, the, the Orwellian picture that, uh, that was developed in, in the, in the novel 1984, where there are basically three factors in, in, in global politics, mm-hmm. two of them at any given time are, are fighting each other and the others are kind of on the side. And, and uh, I mean, I, that that scared the hell out of me when I read it way back when the first time when we studied that in school, but we're starting to happen that way. I mean, Africa seems to be the almost the the, the diplomatic and geopolitical battleground right now. They're trying to win the hearts and minds of many of those African nations. China's a player there, Russia's a player there, and the United States is certainly a player there right now. And it, it really is a power struggle, isn't it? And so are we in terms of the Francophonie in particular. Yeah. Uh, well, that also takes us to Prigozhin and Russia because. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really the foreign policy arm of Russia and, and Africa, uh, albeit technically and theoretically as a separate entity, but we know now that not, nothing separate about it. And uh, his use of force to sustain certain parties, certain uh, governments in particular, certain factions within states, has led to a very lucrative e- empire there in terms of diamonds and oil and other kinds of resources. And the scramble for those by Russia, following on Prigozhin's removal is part of the story. Yes, 52 states or so in Africa. Uh, Africa keeps saying, you're trying to talk to us about taking sides in the war. What we want is grain. You can't tell us starving people to take sides. We need the grain. And Russia, of course, is weaponizing grain mm-hmm. as a weapon of war, as we know, and trying to use it as leverage. Would they give, I don't know, a million tons of grain free uh, to Africa, to shore up support. But of course, <laughs> that's a drop in the bucket for what had been coming out. And the blockade of, of Odessa and so forth is really part of the war effort itself. I don't know if we're heading to those kinds of blocks. We have a, a very fluid geopolitical situation now. And the war in Ukraine is a critical factor because, as we said, if China and Russia working together can change the geopolitical order uh, in part, uh, in primary part right now, by taking over Ukraine and moving Russia deeper into the heart of Europe, uh, then those two can uh, really have a major new kind of say, and particularly if Europe is disunited, and Russia can help disunite Europe. They're very skilled at disinformation wars, and uh, this situation with Poland is, you know, Poland, which was such a staunch supporter of Ukraine, is saying, oh, we're not going to give weapons now. This is a downstream result of Poland feeling the result of Russia's weaponizing wheat as a weapon of war. and all. So it's a, it's a situation where I don't think we're inevitably heading to three blocks. Africa at this moment certainly lacks the unity and the resources to be a block in any event. But they will once again, Africa, uh, have a struggle for power by other, by outsiders, um, almost going back to post-1869 after the opening of the Suez Canal and Western imperialism then uh, flooded more uh, directly into Ukraine, into Africa, creating the states we see today through colonialism. So I'm, I'm not sure we're headed to, I too was <laughs> uh, weaned on 1984, mm-hmm. and some of the phrases that came out of it are still so resonant, and uh, uh, the switching of sides so smoothly, all of that is there, but I uh, I don't think 1984 is necessarily a map for our future, but uh, it's well worth reading and remembering. Yeah, and and as you say, some of the phraseology may be different than it was in in Orwell's times, but uh, the intent of of some of the language and some of the the politics there seems uh, eerily similar to what's going on. Uh, Which, by the way, it kind of segues us because I wanted to bring India into this discussion too. Uh, and I guess maybe the overriding question here, Elliot, <laughs> to, to bottom line this, whose side are they on? I mean, they, they pride themselves and oftentimes, uh, you know, the, the, the experts and, and the observers will say, well, you know, this is the largest democratically elected country in the world. Um, but the, Modi has his own situations. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll delve into the situation with the Canada, uh, India thing here right now. Uh India is very cozy with Russia. They buy arms from Russia. Uh, they buy grain from Russia. Uh, and there, and the other element to this too is, is well, they seem to have this relationship. China would like to have a stronger relationship with with India. Uh, yes. The United Nations or the United States, rather, and President Biden 
are looking at that. I, I, it seems as if everybody's looking at India and say, uh, we got to be friends with these guys. We may not like that guy. We may not, not like what they're doing politically, but we can't ignore them. And, and the, the fight is on right now to find who's going to influence this. And Modi is sitting back right now just saying, bring it on. Show me what you got. Yes. Uh, whose side is uh, Modi on or India? It, 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 they're on India's side. Yeah. Uh, one thing you did mentioned of all the long connections with Russia. These are very long and deep connections. Canada served on the International Control Commission since you mentioned Vietnam. And it was not a pleasant experience for the Canadians mm -hmm. dealing with the Indians through that long process as well. But India has been buying uh, Russian oil. This is at a time when uh, the, US, the, the West is fighting this war and they're cutting off the primary income earner the only income earner just about that russia has is oil uh there's the two main countries buying that oil right now and the first in, in magnitude is india they're t buying this oil at a discount refining it inside india then selling it back to europe refined products um, and as well as the rest of the world that's they backed off that a little bit now russia and, and, and India have a very long and deep relationship, but at the same time, China has emerged as number one uh, economic uh, partner for, for India, as, along with many other states, of course. Uh, Mr. Modi, um, and, and I'd back that up a little bit, India uses its weight very, very well in the shifting geopolitics of the world over decades. The, um, Mr. Modi is a nationalist leader of a different sort, than previous, than previous leaders. He also has an election coming. Uh, his actions toward Canada, which I suspect you want to talk about, hmm. uh, are part of that. Uh, he's, he wants to come off as, as the, the leader that can make India feel proud. And that's a very potent message. The element to this, and, and I'm, I'm looking at the dynamic that's happening here, and I get a sense of deja vu sometimes, Elliot. Uh, we know how Modi governs in India. Uh, we know the, the 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 conflicts that are going on between Sikhs and Hindus. Uh, we know that there's persecution, that there's an awful lot going on. We talk about human rights violations. Yet it seems as if the United States and many other uh, United Nations members here seem to turn a blind eye to that because they, they to use the, the vernacular, they don't want to piss Modi off. Uh, yep. You know, we want to keep him as a friend. And didn't we do the exact same thing with China? And where did that get us? Well, China and India, of course, is, that's, that, that's why India is, in this era, playing its weight so, uh, so skillfully, because mm -hmm. uh, everybody, including the U.S., wants to have India be a counterweight to the emerging China. And it's the way that China is choosing to emerge that I think we need to come back to when we talk about India. China is a superpower, but under Xi Jinping, they are an aggressive, hostile adversarial superpower at the same time saying they want stability in the world and they're everybody's friend. Uh, and India at the same time is saying, uh, we, we are not aligned to any group. Historically, uh, we are a non-aligned country. Uh, we are a democracy. Uh, and so we welcome in Xi Jinping. Then we welcome in Joe Biden. Joe Biden has gone to great lengths to woo uh, India. Other countries are doing so as well. The UK, Rishi Sunak, is, uh, you know, his ancestry is uh, from India. But mm -hmm. the UK right now is desperate for a free trade deal with India because how they, if I could put it gently, uh, mismanaged their relationships with Brexit. They pulled out of the world's most successful free trade bloc. Now they are looking for partners, and India is prominent. So what does the world do now when it's discovered through what's happening in Canada that India is not a benign player, uh, how is the world going to react? Well, poorly I, I might be the short answer to that uh, because of, as you say, the consequences of those actions. And, and I guess that's how we can bring Canada into this as well. Uh, the, the, the conflict between Hindu and Sikh in India is not new. Uh, it's been going on for God knows how long now. And uh, it, it seems as if the, that that very, very volatile incendiary political atmosphere is being exported to different parts of the world. Uh, and Canada is, is a big player there. We have a huge uh, population, of course, of, uh, of people from India, uh, mostly Sikh, I guess, but there's some Hindus here as well. Okay. And and that war between those two factions is is now being fought on Canadian soil. Uh, and uh, the Indian government is not really pleased with that, are they? Well, 
there's so many dimensions to this one. Uh, mm-hmm. The first is, major dimension is that there has been within India uh, a movement among Sikhs for a very long time, coming up to a higher point uh, in the 1980s for, well, to the one independent state representing Sikhs carved out of the Punjab, or do they want an independent country carved out of the Punjab? You know, like Pakistan was carved off. Why not carve off the Sikh majority part of the Punjab, leaving the other uh, kind of rump part of the Punjab inside India? That movement, as we know, came to a peak in 1983 with some parts of the movement, the Khalistan movement, an independent state or homeland for the Sikh movement, it, some parts of that movement became very violent. And uh, there was a, a, basically an internecine war within India over this at the very, um, at one point, the holiest place in Sikhdom was taken over by uh, the most violent of the factions within the Khalistan. Remember, this is only a portion of the Sikhs, but that faction uh, did uh, take over. And then Operation Blue Star happened. That is, India, uh, the Indian government attacked the holiest shrine in Sikhdom. And after that, Indira Gandhi was assassinated. This is a scar on India's history. Uh, it, it's not going to go away. That's a memory and legacy. But uh, India did crush that at home, that movement. They crushed it with some violence. And then also uh, by using elections. After two or three elections, the sting was pulled from the movement. In fact, uh, the leading Sikh political party, the Akali Dal, ended up in coalition all party coalitions within the Punjab. So democratic force and democ- plus democracy was used. Uh, and, and it's not a major movement at the moment within India, but among the diasporas of the world, that flame of Khalistan is, uh, remains. And Canada is one of the biggest. Yes, we have a substantial South Asian population, 1.4 million or something uh, of that, but about half of those are Sikhs. And within that um Canadian dimension, there is again a strong Khalistan movement. We know that the worst uh, atrocity committed, the worst act of terrorism ever committed in Canada was blowing up of Air India Flight 182 back during the violent phase of what was going on. Uh, And I lost a friend on that flight. (laughs) So, And there was a second flight of Air India that was also blown up. That was traced back to elements inside Canada. So India ever since then has said correctly in a way that the Khalistan movement really is thriving in the, among the diaspora, parts of the diaspora, not necessarily all of them, but what we saw bringing this to a head into the current events right now is that a, a leader of the Khalistan movement, and keeping in mind once again, that's not necessarily all Sikhs in Canada, but those who want to keep this alive uh, have a power base inside uh, some of the gurdwaras, some of the temples. The leader of that, Pamani uh, Nijar, uh, was organizing referenda around, across Canada, but around the world, among other diasporas, do you want an independent Khalistan? And uh, what we are told now is that the Prime Minister of Canada has stood up in Parliament and said, yes, a leader of the Khalistan movement in Canada has been assassinated. A Canadian citizen has been assassinated on Canadian soil linked to agents of the Indian state. I don't have the exact quote, but that's pretty well the quote in front of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the argument begins. Well, uh, in Canada, you do not confuse and we will not confuse and never will confuse activism from terrorism. Activists in Canada, people in Canada, citizens of Canada have a right to express themselves. India says, that's not expression. Uh, this, is, this is terrorism. You're supporting extremism. And they are a threat to us. They're threatening violence back home. Uh, and what we are now learning uh, is that apparently our intelligence services for some decades now have been saying privately to the government of Canada that India is I'm going to quote one of our leading intelligence, uh, most distinguished intelligence uh, officers we have in Canada, Dick Fadden, who said on air uh, recently, India has been mucking about in Canadian politics for decades. And we are in a situation in Canada where 
the government of Canada is rather sensitive <laughs> to being accused of ignoring warnings from our intelligence community because of what's going on with China. And we now apparently, uh, apparently there's been a murder and we have factual evidence, according to the government of Canada, that India actually did lead to an assassination. So not only has India been having influence operations for decades, but it has now led to an assassination on Canadian soil and that the balloon has gone up as a result of that. And, and then and I'm, I'm just wondering if, if the debate that's going on, and of course it's become a political football as most things do in the, in this country these days uh, between the, the opposition parties and the government. Uh, but are they asking the right questions? I mean, you, you know, Paul F stands up the next day. First of all, he was very defensive of Canada uh, when the announcement was first made. But then, of course, he, he starts saying, we need more information. Why isn't right. the Prime Minister forthcoming with these information? Right. How did he come to this conclusion? And right. I know Andrew Coyne talked about this in his uh, recent column uh, that was late last week in the Globe and Mail. Uh, that that Polyev is asking the wrong questions in this situation. Uh, first of all, he he did. This is not J Justin Trudeau's uh, conclusion. This is, as you mentioned, uh, based on information from the Five Eyes and at least one other member there and CSIS work that's been going on for quite some time. I mean, it's the political th way to do this, of course, is to blame the opposition and everything is Justin Trudeau's fault. That's not really the case here. But as Andrew Coyne pointed out, uh, what we should be talking about here is the Canadian government's seemingly benign neglect of all of this. This is, as you say, a, a mountain of information, uh, both China and India, uh, having some work and stirring the pot here in Canadian political yeah. scene. And this government and previous governments, for that matter, as Coyne points out, have not, if not ignored it, at least decided to do nothing about it. And, and you know, that seems to have placed us in the circumstance that, that we're in right now. Yes, let's, there's a couple parts to this your comment. First yeah. of all, the evidence. Uh, I, I, how can I put this gently? I've been faintly amused by canvassing various countries' reactions. In Canada, this immediately became dragged into a domestic issue. Oh, this government, um, they're just so clever now. They're changing the, the uh, they're changing the story. They were supposed to be on the defense. Look, now they're on the offense. How clever of them. And yes, where's the evidence? You, and some of the brightest minds in Canada were saying this. Uh, some of the people I respect the most in Canada were saying, well, the government hasn't presented evidence. Three or four days later, the Financial Times comes out and, um, and uh, CBC has come out with the fact that, in fact, uh, as you alluded to very quickly, the evidence that, and again, let me back up just slightly, this announcement was made in Parliament. It wasn't made in a speech someplace. It wasn't made in a scrum. It was, so this is Canada accusing India. This is an accusation from the floor of parliament. And, you know, show us the stuff. No, you won't come clean, Mr. Prime Minister, et cetera. And as I say, some of the brightest minds in Canada were saying variations on that. And then we, it's come out through the Financial Times and the CBC that, in fact, the information that, that led to that particular accusation, as you alluded to, came from human intelligence and signals intelligence gathered by the Five Eyes. And the Five Eyes, for those of you who are familiar with that, is a, a club of countries that freely share, openly share intelligence. And that's the US, the UK, uh, Canada, New Zealand, and Australia. And the information that led to the announcement on the floor of parliament apparently came not only from our own sources, but from the Five Eyes sources, and now we're also learning through the Financial Times, and I was on air on this as it was breaking, that the Five Eyes members, including and starting with President Joe Biden, while at the G20 summit in New Delhi, personally raised this same issue, directly raised uh, the issue of Indian interference and, and the assassination based on what they know from their internal intelligence operations. And others apparently did as well, directly uh, alluding this to, uh, uh, directing this to Mr. Modi. So what we have now is, uh, where's the evidence? I'm not sure how much of it can be shown, because if you expose human intelligence <laughs> publicly, <laughs> it can be, lead them to hazard. And how is all this uh, signals, communications intercept, uh, how, is, how did that happen? Uh, are we bugging embassies? Because part of the charge, Bill, was that this communications intercept uh, included communications uh, 
by between and among Canadian diplomats, including within the High Commission, the embassy here in Ottawa, a building I know well, I've visited many times. Well, these, this is startling stuff. So the uh, uh, fact is that Canada did not go off half cock or slapdash, as one of our newspapers called it, apparently, because Canada had a lot of support, and that support is coming from uh, the highest of sources, our allies in the Five Eyes. And we saw that, as you mentioned, in the G20 meeting, uh, the, the the rather cool uh, atmosphere around uh, Trudeau and, and Modi uh, during that meeting. Uh, and the fact that, as you say, Biden even questioned Modi about this, not, not in front of microphones or anything. Oh, no, this was but this by- is not new information, is it, Elliot? I mean, you know, the, some people are trying to characterize this as that the prime minister uh, decided to lay this on parliament and to try to deflect the criticism about a whole bunch of other things that are going on. But they were aware of this now, according to that documentation, for some time, for weeks, if not months. Uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, the uh, security expert, of course, of the Biden administration, I think reaffirmed that just the other day, very strongly, as a matter of fact, that this is not something we've just made up, but that we do have uh, very strong indications. Uh, I know they're wordsmithing this. That's that's the diplomacy involved in this. Uh, But in an interview uh, for CTV News, uh, the uh, an American ambassador to, to Canada has pretty much laid out the same sort of thing. He says, this is not this is not fiction. Um, you know, we have evidence here that, that indicates this. And uh, I guess, you know, people hear what they want to hear in situations like this. But I, I think we're missing the point here to try to blame Trudeau for, as you mentioned, political deflection. I mean, that's that's, again, a political answer to that, to try to, you know, characterize Trudeau in that fashion. But we're, we seem to be missing the clear and present danger here about foreign governments doing their business on Canadian soil. Uh, we know the Chinese did it. Now, what I find ironic about this, to your point, is uh, when the Chinese interference seemed to be the, the top issue when it came to security in this country, uh, the opposition parties were more than willing to believe all the information CSIS was giving us and say, you're right, you know, yeah, you guys are screwing up here, Prime Minister, and why aren't you relying on CSIS? Well, now that it's reversed and it's India, uh, those conservatives, small C and large C conservatives, are now questioning the intelligence. Uh, you know, if that's not, that's not a spear we want to use anymore. We want to try to to discredit that now, and it's it's I it's really muddying the waters, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, Canada did, like our Five Eyes, want to keep this out of sight. All of this was a, an attempt to work behind the scenes to convey to India we have evidence of what you're up to. And we don't think it's right. And we want you to change your behavior because we don't want to get in a public struggle with India because we need India. India is just far too important. They use their weight very well in the world and they are an emerging power. But uh, we learned that uh, Canada's security advisor went twice to India, spent four days there, uh, Jody Thomas, and then five days later, uh, five days uh, at a separate occasion, trying to work this out behind the scenes. But due to good quality journalism in Canada, and I think uh, leaks from our intelligence services, that very frustrated, uh, this was about to be made public. So then the prime minister, in terms of timing, stood up and made a public announcement out of it. So the the uh, I guess I have two bottom lines. Uh, one is that out of all of this, Generally speaking, Canada is going to be, in a major way, stepping up our games about foreign interference and influence operations. I'm confident we'll be far better armored in due course after all of the inquiries. And the result of that will be legislative and and procedural changes and changes in how our security apparatus works. The second is, in terms of India-Canada relations, this is very personal to me. Bill, I've been promoting Canada-Asia relations and especially Canada-India relations professionally and personally all of my career. This is this is what I, I've been pursuing. And now it's indescribably sad to me to see us come to this point. We are now at a point in our relationship where it's going to be very hard for Canada uh, and India to claw back from this, to go back to something like decent relations. And while we're on the subject then, because you've raised it, a third conclusion is we now are going to have a very clear picture of how Modi's India wishes to portray itself as a power. We have seen 
uh, Xi Jinping's China uh, come out, uh, you know, just a few years ago. China was very popular. Everybody, I've got business cards from the Chinese from an earlier visit. But now the way that Xi Jinping has chosen to behave, aggressive wolf war diplomacy, taking over the South China Sea and militarizing it, basically they paid a huge reputational cost. If you follow the, the Pew uh, surveys on this, uh, it's really China is now almost in reputation, almost a pariah state, not an actual behavior. But it's gone way down how China decided to emerge. Now we get to see, looking at Canada and India, what kind of an emerging power does India want to be? Do they want to bat us around, to put us in our place? Do they want to show they're a great big power? Uh, keeping in mind that Canada is a member of G7, and we, <laughs> we are a NATO member. We're, we're not an inconsequential middle power. So how Mr. Modi chooses to portray India using Canada as a case study, so to speak, is going to tell us a lot about what kind of power India chooses to present itself to be in the world ahead. How do uh, does any government then, a Canadian government that is, Elliot, uh, fashion a policy like that without, uh, you know, the influence of political ideologies? Uh, case in point, of course, how Mr. Polyev is attacking Trudeau, and I understand that. That's, that's how you play the game in Ottawa these days. Uh, but as, as some uh, people, as observers have drawn out, uh, his old boss, Stephen Harper, is is still very much active in politics in the geopolitical sense. He's not in power anymore, but he uh, he heads an organization that, that seems to, shall we say, curry favor with authoritarian leaders. Uh, and Modi is one of those. Uh, Hungary is another uh, where former Prime Minister Harper has kind of stuck his nose in there, praising people that run their governments in that fashion. Uh, I'm wondering if there is a change in government here, whenever that next federal election is going to be, uh, do you ignore that authoritarian rule and simply say, well, we need them as a friend, uh, just, just draw a curtain across what's going on there with human rights violations, like they tried to do in China? Or do you play hardball with these guys, as some leaders have tried to do? Well, again, now, without commenting on Mr. Harper at all, but uh, that's now the, the question for the opposition. One obvious way to move forward in Canada-India relations is a change of government in Canada mm -hmm. and maybe a change of government eventually within India because only then can we get off on a new footing. Uh, this is now up to the opposition in Canada if and when they come to power and they're up you know, 14 points in the polls, some polls. Yeah. Uh, how do they want to play this? Uh, intelligence sources, five eye sources say this is going on, uh, but there's the Sikhs are, are not a single community, but there's voting blocks that are available. And all the commentaries I said initially on this was, oh, this is all about domestic politics. Whereas the U.S. and the Atlantic says this is all about India. And the economist says, basically, this is all about India. You have to. So the, the differences and also I was reading some uh, Southeast Asians, some actually uh, Hong Kong sources that say, well, this is what big powers do. So it's all right, isn't it? So I, I've been fascinated by all this. The opposition now has its choice to make in how it chooses to proceed. Clearly, um, had Mr. Trudeau been unable to be backstopped by evidence, if the Five Eyes material had not come out, if we did not have the new information and the strong, strong statement by, um, by Jake Sullivan, who I, I'm going to paraphrase here, but said, it doesn't matter what country you are or who you are, this is not acceptable behavior, thereby backstopping Canada. I'll leave that for the opposition to sort out for itself. But I, uh, the, this disruption, the initial steps taken by India have been the initial steps taken by Canada have been, uh, we kicked out the intelligence chief, the raw uh, mm -hmm. unit within the embassy, and they did the same uh, over there. But we didn't kick out the, uh, the ambassador. We didn't send dozens of people home. Neither did India. So there's a, but this visa ban is really very disruptive indeed. Uh, India is now saying, we're not going to give visas to Canada. And they've had an advisory warning saying that because of politically motivated hatred, we are issuing an advisory warning against Canada. This is an escalation. It's not just that things are tough there, but a, a very specific language. 
the disruption of of life by uh, by this visa announcement, which so far has been one sided. Canada has not banned, not not suspended visas. It's going to affect our trade. It's going to affect commerce. It's going to affect uh, innumerable number of of uh, Canadian lives because India does not permit Bill dual citizenship. So. Canadians of South Asian or Indian descent who want to go home for personal or professional uh, reasons. Diwali is coming. The marriage season in India is opening up right now for the next few months up and through January. Uh, this is all disrupted. And in particular, I'm concerned about the life of our international students. 40% of Canada's international students and international students are increasingly what our universities are depending on. 40% of those only come from one country, Bill, and that's India. What's happening to them? I think an un, unexamined, but I think potent potential factor in the kind of discussion, oh, where is our relations going? I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Canada and on India by people whose lives are disrupted to get this behind them, to find a way to fix it and to return to normal life. We've, I guess, talked at great length about how Canadian politicians have tried to, to use this as, as to weaponize this whole situation. Uh, it's not lost on me, and I, I think a number of other people, too, uh, that, that Prime Minister Modi is using the exact same thing. As you mentioned, there is going to be an election in India shortly. Uh, he could have simply said when, long before the Prime Minister made this public in Parliament, of course, because as you mentioned, there were some discussions even through the G20 and through Jody Thomas uh, from his office months ago now about this. Modi could have reacted and said, well, we abhor violence, we abhor murder. Yes, we'll be part of this investigation. Whether he meant it or not, that could have blunted this whole thing too. But he chose not to because, as you say, now he looks like a nationalist hero defending uh, his government and his people there. Uh, I don't know how you move away from that, Ellie, but that seems to be the the stumbling block right now to to try to move past this right now is is both parties, both United or the Canadian government and the Indian government, are are weaponizing this to try to use it for political purposes. Well, I wouldn't put it that way in terms of Canada. Um, you could say that whoever's prime minister has a responsibility to look after Canadian citizens. Uh, clearly, it will factor into. Uh, domestic politics. I'm very deeply disturbed. I didn't want to raise this, but you opened up with it. That relationship between the Sikh community and Hindus in Canada uh, are starting to, starting to show some wear and tear. And mm -hmm. Canada doesn't need it. And the people, these people don't need it. And these Canadian citizens of, of uh, Indian origin do not need uh, internal dissension inside Canada on this. And, and, and if Mr. Modi plays a role in fanning that, uh, I think that's a mark against him. So, no, I would conclude with uh, this is a really a test case for, since you phrased, framed it so well there, for Mr. Modi. What kind of leader is he? What kind of India does he want to lead? And how does he want India to, to use its strength, its emerging uh, role, an increasingly strong role? How does he want to use that uh, power going forward? And since I also have been following India for a long time, I'll go back to 1998. Well, let's go back to 1962, first of all, <laughs> go a long way back. But the founding of the party that Mr. Modi leads, the BJP, goes back to when China invaded India uh, because of disputed borders of vague maps. Uh, China just rolled into India, took what it wanted and stopped unilaterally. This led to a backlash in India. Student movement became the BJP. Fast forward to 1998. And the BJP was in office at that point, and they decided to make India go from a nuclear-capable state to a nuclear weapon state. And the popularity of the BJP soared. I mean, it was at stratospheric level, levels. And then less than six months later, Indian democracy came to life on this. And Indian democracy defeated the BJP in a number of uh, major city and regional elections because of the price of onions and potatoes. So uh, India is a vital democracy. It has NGOs, true. It has been moving in a more authoritarian direction. And I say this uh, not, not with gladness, nor is it my opinion. You see this repeatedly in the public media 
Mr. Modi is linked with Putin and Duterte and uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, it hurts me every time I see that. But uh, India is possibly going to be a self-corrective uh, democracy on this. But that's the internal operation of India. Uh, we'll have to see how all of this factors domestically. Will this nationalism, we've made India proud, look what we can do around the world, and nobody can touch us. Look, everybody's pursuing us, no matter what they say about us over this tiny incident over an insignificant country like Canada. Yet the world needs India. We'll have to see as a test, as a, as a way to judge how India is going to emerge as a power going forward. And maybe you are spending just a little bit too much time looking in the rearview mirror as to how we got here instead of looking forward and saying who, who are going to be the leaders through this whole thing. A uh, very fluid situation. Elliot, it's always a pleasure to have you uh, with us to try to give us some perspective and, and some historical perspective on this. Uh, and as always, thank you so much for the time today. Really enjoyed our conversation. Very welcome, Bill. It's uh, such important topics, and it's a mm -hmm. pleasure to discuss them with you. Well, and we'll uh, certainly hook up again down the road as uh, events warrant it. Thanks again, Elliot. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor at Carleton University. And uh, that's it for this edition of uh, the podcast, Critical Discussions During Critical Times. I'm Bill Kelly. Until next time, thanks for watching. This podcast was brought to you by Rebecca Wizens and her team at Wizens Law. Rebecca Wizens is a 20-time winner of the Hamilton Reader's Choice Awards for their exceptional client care and legal practice specializing in personal injury, car accidents, accidental falls, and Wilson Estates. Now, if you or a loved one have been seriously injured, or if you want to make sure that your family is taken care of for the future with a will and powers of attorney, call Rebecca Wizens, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. When life happens, you can rely on Rebecca Wizens and Wizens Law. And trust me, Rebecca is my wife, and I don't know what I'd do without her. That's Wizens Law, 905-522-1102 for a free consultation. Subscribe to my Substack for timely news updates and commentary straight to your inbox. Let's keep the conversation going. I'd love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Let me know what you think we should be talking about next by contacting me through my website at www.billkelly.co. Thanks for tuning in. This is Bill Kelly. Till next time, you take care. <laughs>